there. Welcome to our podcast, Paradoxify. I am Ann McFarland, author, screenwriter, and mother of five. I'm here with my co-host and husband, Dr. Tim McFarland. Together, we like to talk about the unexpected. That's right. And specifically, we want to talk with our guest about unexpected stories in STEM and faith. STEM, of course, being an acronym for the words science, technology, engineering, and math. And that's our goal, to deliver the unexpected. Also, in every episode, we will start with a riddle or question, and listeners can try to solve it. We will give them the answer by the end of the episode. Great. Let's get started. First guest on our podcast, honey, is you. I'm going to ask you if you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a board-certified family physician. I've owned and operated a small-town practice for over 30 years, and now for the last three years, I've worked in emergency rooms and as a hospitalist. And what's your burning question for the day? I'm just curious, why are people buying so much toilet paper? <laughs> it's been gone from our store shelves for days. Why are people doing this? This really puzzles you. You know what? I did find some answers. You've mentioned this so many times, so I actually dove into it and I found several answers, but I'm going to tell one of them to you later. Just one? Yep, just one. Going to keep you in suspense about the toilet paper shortage so you can come back and talk to me. So keep me in suspense, although it's not like we're lacking for suspense these days. You're right, we're not. (laughs) But anyway, let's get started. We're going to talk about the elephant in the room, COVID-19. It's a virus. What does that mean? Well, you have to understand the difference between bacterial infections and viral infections. Bacteria are their whole complete cells. They have a cell membrane. They have nucleus. They have DNA, RNA. They have ability to replicate. And so we have antibiotics, and antibiotics kill the bacteria. Viruses, though, just have a protein capsule, and they have an RNA center. They actually invade our cells and use our cells to replicate. So we can't give them an antibiotic that would kill our cells or it would kill us. Flus and colds are viruses. They're harder to treat than a bacterial infection. One famous one is hepatitis C, and it now has a treatment. It takes about three months. Whereas strep throat is a bacterial infection. If I give you antibiotic for strep throat, it will actually kill the bacteria, and you should be better in just a few days. Okay, so basically you're saying that the antibiotic goes for the bacteria stuff and the virus, there's nothing we can do about it. So flus and colds are caused by viruses. Flus and colds are caused by many viruses. In fact, there's probably over 200 Coxsackie viruses and there are at least four coronaviruses. Viruses have a protein shell casing around a piece of RNA. These bits of protein encapsulated RNAs it invades our cells and it drives the activity of our cell to reproduce itself. I don't get a polio vaccine every year. Polio was one of the viruses from way back, but I have to get a flu vaccine every fall. What's that about? Well, there's four strains of polio, but fortunately they're very stable and they have not changed since 1950. Unfortunately, the viruses that cause the flu and colds keep mutating or changing a little from time to time. Because of this shift or drift, you get immunity to the virus that gave you the flu last year. But next winter, you might be completely immune to it if there was no drift, or only partially immune to it if there was a little bit of drift, or relatively not immune to it at all. 
If there's a year where there's a big change, we call that a bad flu this winter. Do animals get viruses? Yes, we know that animals can have colds and get viruses. Some of the viruses infect humans and animals. Some viruses just affect one, but not the other. So my dog might have a cold and give it to me or vice versa. But a lot of viruses cannot make that leap from animals to humans or even one species to another animal species. So a virus might infect my cat, but not my dog or just me. A super outbreak, like several we're familiar with in the past 20 years, include N1H1, SARS, and MERS, M-E-R-S. Okay, so these are viruses you're talking about. These are viral super outbreaks. tend to happen when a virus that is in an animal only, somehow the virus mutates and the mutation allows it to infect humans. Then we try and determine if the virus can be transmitted from human to human. If not, a person would have to come into contact with that animal or with that species to get the infection. Okay, so all this stuff is really kind of interesting and probably some of the important background that goes behind us figuring out how these new viruses are going to act or behave and develop. Does this viral thing jumping from animal to human ever happened before? Yes. Actually, in the last 20 years, it seems to have happened about every five years. Oh, gosh. That's pretty often. Well, there's some things that are important to look at those and then some important differences that we have to understand the COVID infection. So SARS, S-A-R-S, stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. It was a coronavirus and it was identified in 2003. It started in southern China, and it was a coronavirus that had a large shift. We think it was a virus that jumped from an animal reservoir to humans. You might remember H1N1. It was a new or novel strain of swine flu influenza. And in 2009, it jumped from swine or pigs and became able to infect humans and to have human-to-human transmission. I think you showed me an interesting page on that from the CDC from 2009. We're going to offer several things that we can email back to people if they want them. And one of the things that... I saw, and it was written in 2009, but it had similar discussions as to what's going on with COVID-19. And I guess that's the point you're making. It's like we have intel on the virus behavior from the past things that happened with viruses. Not that they're going to be the same type of virus, but we have some things we can understand. What can you tell me about the H1N1 virus? Well, the H1N1 virus, we think, started in Mexico. It's called the swine flu of 2009, and it helps us understand that some animals seem to have the ability to have multiple viruses or colds at the same time. Rarely, these multiple strains can genetically mix with each other. We call this not shift or drift. We call it reassortment. When reassortment does occur, the viruses that emerge will have some genetic segments from each of the infecting parent virus, but will obviously be different and have different characteristics from either one of the individual parent viruses. Okay, that sounds a little bit like children who will having our characteristics. They're like both of us, but they also have some different things from each of us. So our offspring children are all unique. Yes. And so in H1N1, the reassortment appears most likely to have occurred between influenza viruses that were predominantly circulating in North American pig herds, and then there was a mix somehow with Euro-Asian pig herds. Reassortment of influenza viruses can result in an abrupt major change in the influenza virus, and that's known as antigenic shift. When a major genetic shift happens, most people have little or no protection against the new influenza virus that results. There's a lot of information about this. One interesting publication you can look up is how the flu virus can shift, drift, or shift. Okay, so the word, though, is reassortment. That's the word you're using as these things happen. The reassortment is where they mix the genetic material. So the flu test in 2009 checked for influenza A and B. 
but it would not check for the new or novel N1H1. A test had to be developed to check for that. Some people don't realize that N1H1 scare died down over the next winter and the next winter after that because it was not novel or new to humans. Some people started to develop immunity to it, more or less. And some people don't even realize that the flu test we've used since 2011 have included H1N1 as influenza A. Okay, so we're getting like a, a combo deal in our flu shot. And in our flu test. Okay, so tell me about MERS. It MERS. I don't know if I'm saying it right. It's MERS, M-E-R-S. It stands for Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. And it's an illness caused by a virus. Oddly enough, it is a coronavirus. So MERS patients develop severe respiratory illness. They have fever, cough, and shortness of breath. It turns out it is extremely lethal. Three or four out of every 10 patients that were diagnosed with MERS died. Gosh, that's a terrible death rate. So in September 2012, this disease was discovered and the world was panicked. But it turns out it's not very contagious. So we never even developed a vaccine for it because you have to be in extremely close contact with a person who has it over a long period of time. Or you can be exposed directly to the virus, such as if a healthcare professional is intubating an infected person. Well, I think you mentioned there was a sheet that we can offer, too, with this information on it if anyone listening wanted to email us. And I'll give you that email at the end of this show. Okay, so now we're up to COVID-19. Tell us about this. As we talk, we know that our listeners have a lot of information already, but um, we're just going to sort of summarize. So in November 2019, an astute physician in China noticed that people in a city were getting a severe flu, and in particular it was killing a lot of elderly people. He alerted the authorities that there might be a new virus. Initially, the authorities tried to ignore the problem, but by the end of December 2019, a new coronavirus was identified. I would have called it Corona 5 or 6 or whatever the next number. Instead, it was called a novel corona, and that's novel as in new, not a novel that you might read a book. Or that like I might write because I actually do write novels. <laughs> because it was discovered in 2019, it started being called Novel Corona 2019. And that's how it's now called COVID-19, the Corona Viral Infectious Disease of 2019. So it's like an acronym, C. Got it. We now know COVID-19 initially spread from an animal to a human, but that obviously it can be spread from human to human. Since it's new, no one has any immunity to it. It also seems to be twice as contagious as most flus. Oh, gosh. It's also twice as lethal as the average flu. But I can't overemphasize how important those numbers are and that we really do not know those numbers yet for COVID-19 because it's so new. So we have to know the true contagious rate from one person to the next, and then the true death rate from a person who gets COVID-19. So but you said it's twice as lethal and twice as contagious. How do they know that? Well, those are only estimates, and some of the estimates are indicating that the death rate is 10 times or 20 times higher than the flu. So is COVID-19 the flu or a flu? Yes, it is a flu. Can we learn things about COVID-19 comparing it to the flu of the past? Definitely yes. Most people are amazed that the normal flu infected 30 million people in the United States every winter. And 30,000 people only in the U.S. died every winter from the flu. Gosh, that's a large number. The flu has a very high contagious rate, but it only has a 0.1% death rate. In other words, one out of 1,000 people that get the flu will die. Remember MERS? It killed three or four out of 10 people. 30 to 40% of the people that got it, it was lethal. But almost no one got MERS because it has such a low transmission rate. So those two things, comparing the contagious rate and the death rate of the flu compared to MERS to understand how it's risky to the public, that's how it's figured. That is correct. 
So if you do the math, if, and that's a big if, if COVID-19 is twice as contagious as the flu, it will affect 60 million people in the United States. And if it's twice as lethal, it will kill 120,000 people. The flu is bad. That's correct. Because we don't know enough about COVID-19, we do not know what the correct conversions are. Because if the conversion, instead of being twice as contagious, is it's five times more contagious. And instead of being twice as lethal, it's 10 times more lethal. Then the numbers change dramatically, and we would end up in the United States with 1.5 million deaths. That's a lot. A lot, a lot. Well, it's terrible considering that in 2018 in the United States, we had a total of 2.8 million deaths. So that would be more than half of the people that die in a year would die in the United States just from COVID. So I guess, though, we're still trying to understand why would anyone think these numbers could be this bad? COVID-19 has proved itself to be much worse than the flu because how it can overwhelm the medical care in places like China and Italy. And we're starting to see the same problem in the United States, even though we have excellent medical care in these high-density populations like New York City. We've only seen the tip of the iceberg, but the part of COVID-19 that we've seen looks terrible. Yeah, it does. I guess it's kind of crazy, though. Some people are suggesting that we just don't do testing. Why would that be? Well, they feel the pandemic is so rampant that testing is not as important as earlier. Everyone or most people will get COVID-19 is the thought. So we just need to treat the sick patients and act as if everyone has it. So they're just saying, like, just presume everyone has it and, and treat them. And is that what you think? I mean, do you think that's the right thing to do? Is testing important? I think testing is very important because we can only know the numbers that we've been talking about by doing a lot more tests. When you say just stop testing, treat everyone as if they're COVID positive, this assumes that the nation will agree to live as if that's the truth. And I'm afraid that Americans won't do that. But worse, in my opinion, the idea and the mentality of don't test because it's not important is internally contradictory. So what does that mean? What does internally contradictory mean? Well, if I test people, I can tell you which person are COVID-19 positive. And then you will social distance from those persons by self-preservation. And if one person is positive in a household, you can isolate that person. But if you assume everyone is positive in a household or everyone is positive in my town, then who goes to the store to get food? The other problems when you start giving up on testing is related to vital industries, including particularly healthcare workers. So if a nurse or a doctor get a cough, do you send them home? Well, they have COVID-19, you definitely want to, or they're going to infect their patients and their co-workers. But if you send every medical care worker home who has a cough, you won't have enough health care workers to take care of patients. You may be sending a whole bunch of workers home that aren't COVID contagious. You know, if you ask all health care workers to home quarantine for a month, you're not going to have anyone to be at the hospital to do the work that's needed. Yeah, that, I get what you're saying. It's This is kind of contradictory, nonsensical to do it like that. But. And on the infected side, if you're not testing people, particularly health care workers, enough, you easily could have COVID-19 infected workers unknowingly spreading the disease to patients and co-workers. And the same is for all the necessary industries like the health supply manufacturers, grocery store workers, pharmacy workers, energy supply sectors, on and on. Yes, the other thing we have to realize, some people cannot social distance, such as people in a senior living or a nursing home, or even families with handicapped members. At our nursing home and retired living center that no one's allowed to go in or out. Isn't that social distancing? Yes, but if someone in the nursing home starts getting a cough and you don't test them oh, until someone already okay living or a resident okay gotcha so if someone already living in the nursing home starts getting a cough and you don't test them until they've been coughing for four days and they have to go to the hospital and they have to get a cat scan and they're about to get on a respirator 
Then you test them and find out they, they're COVID positive. They've already exposed all the other people in their nursing home because those people cannot social distance from each other. So we know many people contract COVID-19 and are contagious to others, but have no symptoms or very little symptoms. So if we're only testing people when they're really sick, we're encouraging asymptomatic or people with minimal symptoms to not get tested, and we let them keep working in the hospital or the pharmacy or the plant or wherever. We're allowing them to continue to infect other people unknowingly. We're going to be slow in learning how this virus behaves and how to take care of it. We need to know quickly how long is the incubation period. When does an infected person become contagious? On the other end, we're going to have people that were sick and are getting well. How do we know when a sick person is completely recovered? How do we know when they're not shedding the virus? Is it variable? Some people might have gotten COVID and then two days after they're well, they're not shedding virus. Maybe it's a week. Maybe it's a month. Maybe it's variable. One person might not be shedding virus after they're well for two days. Other people, it might be longer. How do we know this? We have to do testing. Okay. So the things that the rest of us can do, because we don't have access to tests and we don't make those decisions, we've known the part that we can do is the good hygiene and our social distancing. And those are the things we've been told over and over that those are the things that help. Would you concur in that? Absolutely. Hygiene and social distancing decrease the spread of every infection. So if someone is marooned on a desert island, will not get COVID-19. But that strict of a concept of home quarantine is not practical. Life is a risk-benefit ratio. So is social interactions. Remember, 30,000 Americans died this winter from the flu. It's worse in colder regions. It's worse in high-density populations. Okay, so you said the risk-benefit ratio. What is home quarantine, and, and that's going to benefit us? Tell us about home quarantine. Technically, no one goes in or out of a home. Unfortunately, this is impossible to do. Someone has to go to the grocery store. We need to get outside from time to time for fresh air and exercise. But social interactions should be done remotely. And I'm afraid too many people are misunderstanding the rule of 10 people or less in a group. Oh, yeah. You know, I was talking to our college girl. We were talking and kind of laughing, like, does the virus just go along and go, oh, there's a group of 10 people. We don't need to bother them. Right. One family of four visits another family of four. So that's eight people. It's less than 10. But two hours later, both of those families go visit another family of four. When you add it all up, your quarantine becomes worthless because people are interacting with other people and then interacting with other people and then interacting with other people. Here's a statement I made in early March that COVID-19 will spread just like every flu. This one started in Washington State, but it will spread quickly to New York, the rest of the East Coast, Chicago, then Houston, and other cities, and then it will go rural. I live in a town of 12,000. We have 10 streetlights. We don't have buses. We don't have trains. We don't have social crowding on subways. We have less cases of the flu and fewer deaths because less densely populated areas will do better than places like New York City. We know that social distancing works to decrease viral infections, and so does hand sanitizer. Washing your hands, wiping surfaces with antiseptic and covering your coughs and sneezes. If we were aggressive in doing these things every winter, we could probably decrease deaths from the flu down from 30,000 to 15,000. Our hope is that the same thing will happen with COVID-19 if we can try to home quarantine as best we can, shelter in place, good hygiene, that we can decrease the spread and the number of deaths. Okay, so... Basically, what we've got is a lot of heavy stuff, and there's still a lot of questions. Um, but we do have some things we can do to change the outcome if we all get on board. I want to ask you four questions on a completely different topic line. This is something we're going to do at the end of every episode. So since you're our first guest, here's the question. I want to know if you have a specific faith, or are you an atheist? I'm a Christian and have a faith of that background. 
And is there something you find satisfying about your faith practice? Well, I find that my faith gives me the opportunity to look at things like COVID-19, where things are completely out of control, and realize that my faith says that there is someone in control, and it's something bigger, and it allows me to relate to problems in the world in a different manner. Is there something in your faith practice that you find unsatisfying? Well, I find that my actions don't always align with my faith. And that's disappointing. And I see that not only myself, but in a lot of Christians. But then I also realize that I'm not saying I'm a Christian because I'm perfect. I'm a Christian because I believe in Jesus Christ. The other thing I find dissatisfying is when people who aren't Christians look at me and say, oh, I can't have a faith because Tim McFarland doesn't follow his faith perfect. So why should I be interested in a faith? What is an early memory that you have that you can call up in your mind of when when you were practicing your faith or you first understood something about your faith? My parents took the whole family to church and were very involved in Christianity from my youth up. I saw how my family wasn't perfect, but they had interactions that were different and were encouraging. And I think a part of that encouragement was because of the Christian faith that we had as a family. Okay, so the reason we decided to ask these questions, and I, and I appreciate your honest, genuine answers, were just sounds like you're saying you're just practicing your faith and you're learning to do better with it and it's not perfect but it's very real and that's why we bring up faith in in this podcast and as we're talking about stem subjects Um, because faith itself is a paradox it's real to us but we can't see it in fact there's a verse about that in hebrews hebrews 11 1 from the bible which says now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen and you know just like there are things in the stem fields that were known to exist but they were not completely understood or able to be proved until a later time so i guess that's what faith is about for us it's very real that's the conclusion of what we were wanting to talk about today well there was one other thing what about the toilet paper yeah that's right i do have that and there were several answers but i'm just giving the one in time of imminent danger, whether it's like a natural disaster such as a hurricane or a snowstorm or something like we're going through, which is pandemic of COVID-19, uh, people do panic buy. And it's because it gives them a sense that they are doing something to address the risk and take precautions and they have very little control. There's a sense of temporary relief that comes and that encourages the behavior. And that's just out of control situation. We take action. And there's more to it than that. And there's some other uh, answers about it, but that's one for now. So I guess the final thing I want to tell listeners in this desire of doing our podcast Paradoxify. Like I said earlier, we didn't know that we were going to be launching at the time of COVID. So we plan to have a couple more episodes that are tangents related to COVID and the pandemic, but then we're going to be pursuing our STEM subjects and, and discussions around those. If you want to email us any questions that you might have or thoughts about COVID, what you're curious about, or something maybe you've heard about that was developed and then took a turn in a different direction, and any feedback you have, if you want those sheets of information information we mentioned earlier, all of these things, you can email us at ann, A-N-N, at paradoxify.com. And that's A-N-N, the at sign, and then P-A-R-A-D-O-X-I-F-I.com. And there's a Bible verse that I just want to leave y'all with to help us as we try to curb our anxiety and pull together. Uh, I have a lot of trouble with anxiety, so I tend to pull these verses out and put them up on my mirror and places. This comes from 2 Thessalonians 3.16. It says, Now may the Lord of peace himself grant you his peace at all times and in every way, regardless of life's circumstances. The Lord be with you all. Thank you for listening. I don't get a polio vaccine every year.